Today is August the 2nd, 2023, Wednesday. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. PRN.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Local ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC owners want the FCC to reclassify streaming services as cable TV companies. What does that mean for cord cutting? Recently, hundreds of local TV stations formed a coalition to ask the FCC to change the rules that allow the TV streaming services to sign big national deals with local TV stations. Currently, for example, YouTube TV, Hulu, Fubo, and more can strike a deal with Paramount for all CBS stations. In short, local TV station owners like Nextstar want YouTube TV, Fubo, and more to all be treated like cable TV companies. To do this, 600 local TV stations are forming the Coalition for Local News to work together. This change would dramatically change how the FCC regulates live TV streaming services. It would also force them to negotiate directly with the owners of local TV stations. No longer would Fubo, Hulu, and others be able to reach deals directly with Paramount for all CBS stations, for example. Now they will need to go to each individual owner of each local TV station. This is what cable TV companies have to do, and it is what live TV streaming services may have to do soon. Back when live TV streaming was new, they needed to go to each local TV station and strike a deal to stream their local ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC. This was slow and meant many locals would be missing on live TV services. A few years ago, locals agreed with the parent companies behind ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC to let them negotiate on their behalf to make one deal that covered all locals. At the time the FCC made these rules that allow special negotiations for streaming services, they were small, with just about 200,000 subscribers. Now they have grown to millions of subscribers. Now Nextstar Media Group, Sinclair EW Scripts, and Gray Television have announced that they want to cut out the middleman and negotiate directly to bring their locals to streaming services. They hope to get better deals than what the parent companies have agreed to. Nextstar's president, Tom Carter, during his earnings call earlier this year, said, We firmly believe we should control our own destiny. With regard to the virtual MVPDs, instead of allowing networks to negotiate on our behalf, Congress and the FCC have always modernized federal rules in other contexts to keep them in line with advancements in communications, technologies, and changes in the marketplace. All we ask is that we modernize these regulations to reflect the current marketplace so local broadcasters are able to compete and thrive on a level playing field, says Michael O'Brien, 
SVP at the EW Scripts Company, and member of the coalition. This streaming loophole that takes direct investments away from local broadcasters and allows national media conglomerates to control the right to local broadcaster signals, ultimately deciding the fate of local news. To fight this major media companies and streaming services like Fubo have created their own coalition to lobby the FCC not to change the rules. So what does this mean for cord cutting? This will likely lead to more blackouts as locals have argued the deals they got with live TV streaming services were too low. So this puts services like Hulu, YouTube TV, Fubo TV, and more in a tough spot. First, agree to the demands of locals for more money and raise their prices or drop locals. We have already seen services like YouTube TV make it clear they won't be raising their price. Look for the battles with the locals become more common, like we are seeing with DirecTV. Over the next few years, many contracts with services like DirecTV, Stream, YouTube TV, Hulu, and more are coming up for renewal. With local owners demanding a seat at the table now, these services have to negotiate with a long list of owners instead of just one company. This is just one of the many legal battles happening around the cord cutting as traditional media companies struggle to address the rapid growth of cord cutting. Amazon will reportedly take on Verizon and AT&T by offering cheap wireless plans with Dish. A few years ago, Dish bought Boost Mobile from T-Mobile and became the fourth largest provider of wireless services. Back in May, the Wall Street Journal reported that Amazon was in talks to partner with Dish to sell wireless plans through Amazon. Now, Bloomberg says the deal is done and Amazon will start selling cheap wireless plans. This move would expand Amazon's lineup of services by offering Amazon-branded plans to its customers. According to reports, Amazon could start selling wireless plans as soon as next month. However, there are issues to work out first before this deal can be finalized. A partnership with Amazon could be the boost that Dish needs to help it finish its 5G rollout and grow its wireless plans. Dish shares recently have fallen as investors worry over its wireless and 5G plans. This is not the first time Amazon has gotten into the wireless market. In 2014, Amazon launched the Fire Phone, a short-lived smartphone running its own OS. Now, though, they want to sell the wireless plans and let you use any phone you want. Dish currently has about 8 million wireless subscribers, but that is down from 8.6 million last year. Right now, Dish uses AT&T and T-Mobile networks, but is building its own network that should allow it to move away from paying third parties. No word yet on pricing, but Amazon is likely to try and use special offers targeting its Prime membership to help attract new subscribers. Dish declined to comment on the reported deal with Amazon. Google delays launch of Find My Device Network and Trackers. Google at I.O. 2013 announced that it would leverage the over 1 billion Android devices in use to find your lost items. The Find My Device, that's FMD network, 
was originally supposed to launch this summer, but Google is now delaying it. Back in May, Google said Bluetooth trackers from Tile, Pebblebee, and Chipolo would be compatible with the Find My Device network. The two latter brands already opened pre-orders, but Chipolo communicated a delay two weeks ago. Google announced today that it's delaying the launch of the Find My Device network. It comes down to unknown tracker alerts that automatically warn you if somebody is monitoring your location with a nefariously placed tag. While Google already said that all Bluetooth tags compatible with the FMD network will support Android's unknown tracker alerts. The iPhone does not have similar detection capabilities. At the start of May, Google and Apple announced an industry-wide unwanted tracker alert specification. Bluetooth trackers that abide by that approach will be discoverable by Android and iOS. The two mobile platforms have committed to add support once this is finalized. Google is not launching the Find My Device network until Apple has implemented protections for iOS by making sure iPhone owners can find FMD-compatible trackers. This should hopefully reduce and help prevent the Google network from being used to track Apple devices without awareness from their owners. That would reflect badly on the FMD network and associated products, which is an ongoing occurrence for AirTags. Notably, Google confirmed that the unwanted AirTag tracker alerts that Android's rolling out are based on a custom implementation that is different from the upcoming spec. Android is implementing the alerts now to allay customer concerns since the Apple tracker is widely available. Apple didn't know Google was ready to release it. Of course they were. Very nice of Google to give Apple a consideration that was not offered in return. In terms of when the Find My Device Network launch, Google only mentions the expected end of 2023 finalization of the spec. There will presumably be another waiting period for Apple to update iOS. What is the Find My Device Network? Find My Device can locate lost phones and watches that are connected to the internet. There's also support for some Bluetooth headphones based on their last known connection to your phone or tablet. The new Find My Device network can locate devices that are offline or don't have location capabilities. This works by having the 1 plus billion Android devices in the world periodically check for nearby devices to cross-source the location of missing ones. Behind the scenes, Google says the location data crowdsource from the network is end-to-end encrypted and that it cannot see or use it for any other purposes. The Find My Device network can locate phones and tracker tags as well as headphones, including Pixel Buds as well as those from Sony and JBL. Google rolls out anti-stalking measures for AirTag and other Bluetooth trackers. It's available for anyone with Android 6.0 or higher phone. Google's anti-stalking measures are rolling out. The company's unknown tracker alerts and other safety measures announced at Google I.O. in May should start appearing on Android 6.0 devices beginning today. The initiative aims to reduce the unfortunate rise in digital stalking 
that materialized soon after Apple AirTags launch in 2021. Android's unknown tracker alerts tells you if an unknown Bluetooth tracker is traveling with you, but not its owner. If your Android phone notifies you about a discovered tracking accessory, you can tap on the alert to learn more about it, including a map of where it traveled with you and, in some cases, a serial number and info about the device's number. You can also tap a play sound option to make the accessory chirp to help you locate it. If it turns out to be something suspicious, it will provide instructions on deactivating it so that the owner will no longer receive updates. In the case of AirTag, that means twisting the top off and removing its battery. The Android rollout also allows you to manually scan for nearby trackers rather than waiting for an alert. Once your phone receives the update, navigate to setting and safety and emergency, unknown tracker alerts, and selecting the scan now button. Google says the manual search only takes about 10 seconds, and if it finds one, you'll see the same option as if you receive an automatic alert. Google and Apple are partnering to address concerns about unwanted tracker stalking. They're working on an industry standard that will enable other third-party trackers to work with the system. In addition, Google announced that its Find My device network, equivalent to Apple's Find My, also announced at Google I.O., is delayed. Google decided to wait for Apple to implement its full unknown tracking protections into iOS before rolling out the new feature. Note that Google's anti-stalking measures may reduce the effectiveness of following tracked stolen items on a map since enterprising thieves can soon quickly discover hidden trackers, no matter which phone they use. However, it's understandable that reducing stalking would override that concern in Google and Apple's Security Balancing Act. ASUS will manufacture and develop new Intel Nook mini-PCs. Intel is focusing on their core business. In recent years, they have shifted their focus to be more data-centric, as they believe the future is moving towards a data-centric world. They have also made efforts to streamline their operations and focus on fewer core businesses where they have strength and expertise. This has included selling off non-core business and assets. Intel recently ended production of its first-party Nook mini-PCs and other products. Intel has announced ASUS as the company's first partner for its next unit of compute, that's Nook NUC, mini-PC business. The two companies have entered a non-binding agreement that will see ASUS manufacture, sell, and support the 10th to 13th generation products in Intel's Nook line. ASUS will also develop future Nook designs based on the business's current lineup. ASUS could be developing future Nook mini-PCs, do-it-yourself kits for mini-PCs, do-it-yourself kits for laptops, customizable boards, chassis, and other assembly elements. If you'll recall, Intel recently said that it's ending its direct investment in its Nook business and will no longer produce first-party Nook products. It did not elaborate on its reasoning, but working with partners for a non-essential business will free up resources it could use to concentrate on making chips. 
Intel previously said its first quarter earnings exceeded expectations, but its revenues were still down 36% year-over-year when compared to its results in the same period for 2022. The company also said it remains cautious in this economy. In its announcement of the partnership, Intel said ASUS expertise and track record of delivering industry-leading mini-PCs to customers make it ideally suited to continue driving innovation and growth in Nook Systems products. ASUS will be establishing a new business unit called ASUS Nook Business Unit for all things related to Intel's Nook. The manufacturer will receive a non-exclusive license to Intel's Nook Systems, though making it possible for the chipmaker to team up with more companies in the future. Apple cracking down on fingerprinting with new App Store API rules. Starting with iOS 17, developers will need to explain why they're using certain APIs. Apple will soon start cracking down on apps that collect data on users' devices in order to track them, also known as fingerprinting. According to an article on its developer's site that was spotted, starting with the release of iOS 17, tvOS 17, watchOS 10, and macOS Sonoma, developers will be required to explain why they're using so-called required reason APIs. Apps failing to provide a valid reason will be rejected starting in spring of 2024. Some APIs have the potential of being misused to access device signals to try to identify the device or user, also known as fingerprinting. Regardless of whether a user gives your app permission to track, fingerprinting is not allowed, Apple cited, to prevent the misuse of certain APIs that can be used to collect data about users' devices through fingerprinting, you'll need to declare the reasons for using these APIs in your app's privacy manifest. The new rules could increase the rate of app rejections. Some developers had said, for instance, check, check. For instance, an API called user default falls into the required reason category, but since it stores user preferences, is used by a lot of apps. At the same time, it sounds like Apple will basically need to take a developer's word for reason declarations. If those prove to be false, though, it would certainly have a paper trail for any potential penalties. Fingerprinting apps can use API calls to retrieve characteristics of your smartphone or PC, including the screen resolution, model, OS, and more. It can then take all this information and create a unique fingerprint so it can identify you when you go to other apps or websites. Apple effectively declared war on tracking when it released iOS 14.5 in 2021, requiring developers to ask users' permission before tracking them. Since that feature arrived, only 4% of U.S. iPhone users have agreed to app tracking. Now it's trying to stop fingerprinting, also called canvas printing. Back in 2018, Apple said it would address fingerprinting on macOS by limiting the data that websites can access on its Safari browser, and now it's addressing the issue with apps as well. (laughs) 
LG Electronics to adopt subscription offerings for its home appliances and televisions. LG, the Korean tech giant, is transforming from a hardware-oriented business to a platform-based service model that continuously generates profits. That means ads and upselling owners on services and features. LG Electronics is looking to squeeze some additional cash from its customers by going all-in on advertising and subscription offerings for its home appliances and televisions. It's part of a plan to increase global annual revenue from the $51 billion reported last year to almost $79 billion by 2030. Part of that growth strategy is to get WebOS, the operating system running LG Smart TVs, onto more external TV brands and other product groups. LG's new growth strategy will introduce a platform-based service business model that continuously generates profits, such as content and services, subscriptions and solutions across its product portfolio. LG says that its TV business will be the first to transition to the new business model with the intent of transforming into a media and entertainment service provider. Sometime towards the end of this year, the company is looking to introduce changes to its WebOS TV software that will allow LG to expand content, services, and advertisement across products like LG, OLED, and QNED TVs. According to LG, the WebOS platform is already running on over 200 million smart TVs globally. The company also intends to bring its WebOS software to external television brands and non-TV hardware in the LG product family at some point in the next five years. Consumers may soon need to pay a subscription to unlock features on LG's ThinQ-Up appliances. Subscriptions will also play a prevalent role on LG's range of household appliances, according to the company's press release. The goal is to further evolve LG ThinQ-Up appliances that upgrade functions customers need even after purchase and evolve into a home-as-a-service platform, which includes customer personalization options, subscription services, and support for unnamed smart home services. LG introduced its ThinQ Up range of upgradable appliances last year that are designed to be adapted with new features via the ThinQ app. We noted that at the time that some automakers were using a similar business model to charge customers to unlock features that are already built into their vehicles. It seems LG was paying attention. It's hard to imagine these changes would be met with open arms by consumers. The sheer number of services adopting subscription models in recent years has sparked concerns over subscription fatigue, a term used to describe consumers who are overwhelmed by subscription offerings. It's prevalent enough that the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has proposed introducing firmer regulations to stamp out some of the industry's more nefarious practices like non-consensual billing and making subscriptions intentionally difficult to cancel. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. 
This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers in the workplace. We talk about where we've been and where we're going. And there's a lot of different things in regards to the workplace that we're going to be seeing evolving over the course of the coming years. And it's it's a kind of unfortunate. I'm going to, at least in this particular case, I, I'm, I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to go back through my history years ago. I would be working with computers, and if something failed on that computer, I would research it. I would try to find out, not not necessarily looking things up, going on out to the fledgling internet at the time, but I would try to figure out what was causing the problem, and I would solve the problem at a detail-oriented level, down at the level of it's doing this, it's doing that, it's doing this, it's doing that. It should be a matter of tweaking this, adjusting that. Over the years, we've seen a an evolution in this. Part of this comes from where we were, I'm, I'm going to say about 20 years ago. Along the way, we moved just a little bit. And in each time we move a little bit, it, it, it kind of scares me because through this, we would find that if you took your computer to a place to get repaired, they would do what I did. They would look into what the problem was and multiple problems and just fine-tune things. And then we found along the way, sometimes it would just be too rough to continue forward. It, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to to go ahead and spend three hours fixing a problem when we could spend one hour fixing the problem by replacing an entire hard drive. It might be a problem with the program. It might be a problem with some level of drivers. It might be a problem that's not necessarily the hard drive, but when we replace the hard drive we're going through and we're wiping the entire operating system clean and we're starting over from scratch and we've slowly moved in that direction where we no longer look at the core issues. We look at, yes, the fastest way to resolution, which on its surface sounds like a good plan. But where this is wound up is we've lost a lot of the progress we've made in configuring the system to our own preferences. We've lost a little bit in regards to all of the programs that we have installed on our computers. We've lost a little bit in all of the different things that you and I have done. So let's let's look at this from the, I'll call it the big box problem. We've seen this, the all of these different stores that specialize in tech and they sell computers and oh yes, they repair those computers. So you bring in your computer and they go ahead and they say, oh, we'll look at it, we'll, we'll process it, we'll figure it out, and we'll solve the problem. And they'll spend 15 minutes on it and go, yep, I'm not going to bother with this, especially since I can make them happier by replacing the hard drive. I'll call them up, oh, yeah, your hard drive's going bad, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there we go. Uh, we'll replace it for you for $100 plus the cost of the hard drive. And you go, okay, I'll get my system back faster, right? Yes. Okay, great. And they go through and they do all of that. And next thing you know, you've got your system back. And then you spend, you yourself, spend a matter of two, three, ten, twenty hours 
getting it back the way you like it. Now, those people who worked at those big box stores over the course of time, they developed one, two, five years worth of experience doing exactly that. Not chasing after problems, not fixing problems, but expediting the resolution of the minor issue through a major fix. So what do we have now? We have a bunch of texts now that don't diagnose the problems. They don't do anything other than just take the shortcut. And we've moved that. So after you have a few years of experience in a big box store, you can now go to a small to medium-sized company or even a large company. And you move in there and you continue the same process. This is this is kind of a concern because back in my years, you could build a computer from the ground up. You still can. You can still go that approach. But so many people are just replacing the hard drive. They're just fix. They're fixing it by just replacing the memory. Yes, time is money. And to swap out the hardware, to do a complete replacement of the hardware. Oh, your your laptop is having a problem. Okay, just bring it into the office. Here we go. We'll swap it out. Here, you've got a new laptop. We'll take the old one. We'll take care of it. And we've moved along. And yes, the, the, everybody's making use of the new technologies. You're excited because you get a new laptop. You're no longer excited when you realize you have to spend 20 hours going through and recreating everything you've done. This is the microwave approach. Instead of developing a nice, really good home-cooked meal. And this is going to result in problems as we continue down a road where the resolution no longer falls on the tech, no longer falls on the person who's supposed to fix the problems, So much of the resolution is just starting over from scratch and putting you through additional work. And I don't like that, especially since you're going to get some of the heat from your boss when they say, why didn't you get this project done? Well, I've been reconfiguring my system after it broke. Yeah, this, I don't like this. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Basic 101. How to improve router Wi-Fi range coverage. Keep your router far away from metal and reinforce concrete that can ruin Wi-Fi speeds. If your router is close to these items, test the router in different positions and you may see an instant improvement. Reinforced concrete walls can slow down your Wi-Fi speed no matter what bandwidth you're using. Try moving your Wi-Fi around the home to find the perfect spot. It may well be that the fundamental problems with your home Wi-Fi lies in the specific combination of your home's layout and where the router actually directs the radio waves. Moving your router around your home until you find the right spot. This is the simplest method, requiring no extra time, money, or specialist know-how. You need to find what position works for you, including how you place the antennas if your router has any.
If your 2.4 gigahertz network isn't reaching your kitchen because of distance and an abundance of reinforced concrete walls, 5 gigahertz probably won't cut it either. Concrete is a notorious thick building material, making it difficult for radio waves to pass through. Reinforced concrete usually has metal inside, which can make the transmission of signals even more difficult. Metal substances also aren't the best substance to be around radio wave-emitting devices. Wi-Fi router speed can be vastly improved if you find that sweet spot for the device at home. If your router has two antennas, place one in a horizontal position and the other in vertical position. Establish a line of sight between your computer and the router if possible. If your router signal has to travel through even one wall or appliance, that is to say a refrigerator or something similar to it, its signal will be weakened. A good rule of thumb is to have your router visible from where you're using your computer or mobile device at all times. If your router is on a different floor, then you may not even be able to receive a signal. You can use a range extender if you have one. If your router has an external antenna, adjust it. If you can, pull the antenna out so it adjusts horizontally as well as vertically. Line of sight between your work area and your router is important. But it doesn't matter if there are several dampening appliances near the router. Dampening appliances can be anything from babies, monitors, to microwaves, to refrigerators. So make sure your router is far away from these items. Your router should also be up relatively high. If your router is at a lower level than the level at which you use your computer, phone, tablet, and so on, you'll probably run into internet connection issues. When a router is labeled as dual band, it means it can encode and decode radio waves at both the 2.4 GHz and 5 GHz frequencies. Most new routers launched today will have this. The maximum distance of a 2.4 GHz radio signal depends on how many factors such as the power of the transmitter, the sensitivity of the receiver, the frequency bandwidth, obstructions in the transmission path, and the presence of interference from other devices operating on the same frequency. However, in general, a 2.4 GHz signal can typically travel up to several hundred feet in an open space without any obstruction or interference. In indoor environments, the maximum distance may vary depending on the number of walls, floors, and other physical barriers between the transmitter and the receiver. Similar to 2.4 GHz, the maximum distance of 5 GHz radio signal also depends on many factors such as the power of the transmitter, the sensitivity of the receiver, the frequency bandwidth, obstruction in the transmission path, and the presence of interference from other devices operating on the same frequency. However, due to the higher frequency of 5 GHz signals, they are more affected by obstruction such as wars or other physical barriers. In general, a 5 GHz signal can typically travel up to around 150 to 200 feet in an open space without any obstructions or interference. However, in indoor environments, the maximum distance may significantly be reduced due to the presence of walls, floors, and other physical barriers. The range can also be affected by other Wi-Fi devices operating in the same frequency range, as well as other sources of interference such as microwave ovens, Bluetooth devices, and cordless phones. The search 
Results suggest that balancing devices between 2.4 GHz and 5 GHz is an important aspect to consider while setting up a Wi-Fi network, especially in high-density deployments. Some of the best practices suggested include utilizing both bands, load balancing connections, and setting preferred 5 GHz with a low threshold. It is also suggested that 5 GHz capable devices should be connected to the 5 GHz band, while 2.4 GHz only devices can be allowed to connect to the 2.4 GHz band. Multiple factors such as client decisions, Wi-Fi capacity planning, and RF profile needs to be considered while balancing the devices between the two bands. If all else does not improve the Wi-Fi, consider replacing the router with a mesh router or node network. TSMC, that's the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, claims that there is a talent shortage in the United States. Chip maker TSMC needs to hire 4,500 Americans at its new Arizona plants. TSMC said it's under construction. Chip fab in Arizona won't be up and running until at least 2025 because of a shortage of skilled workers. TSMC blames it on the shortage of manufacturing talents in the United States. TSMC is investing more than $40 billion in building two fabs in North Phoenix, making it one of the largest foreign direct investments in the state and U.S. history. It plans to employ more than 4,500 workers at its Arizona campus. TSMC said it is sending from Taiwan more workers to the United States to Arizona to help build a massive $40 billion factory to ensure its fast ramp-up. TSMC claims of the talent shortage in the United States causing them to fall behind in the fab construction leads one to have a false impression of a lack of skilled workers in the United States. Well, Glassdoor is a website and app available for iOS and Android devices. It's a great resource to use if you're searching for jobs in a particular career field. You can apply to jobs directly on the website. You can also use Glassdoor to research potential employers and average salaries. Glassdoor searches millions of jobs and gets the inside scoop on companies with employee reviews, salary, and much more information. TSMC's U.S. operations have earned a 27% approval rating on Glassdoor, meaning that less than one-third of its reviewers would encourage others to work there. On the other hand, Intel, one of TSMC's main rivals, has an 85% approval rating. Glassdoor anonymity gives workers cover to dish complaints on past and current employers. The gripes from TSMC workers point to a much bigger problem. The Taiwanese chip giant's tough culture is grating on U.S. employees and job candidates, complicating TSMC's efforts to hire enough employees to staff its two new Arizona foundries. Those foundries, in turn, are a cornerstone of the United States' $52 billion CHIP Act aimed at reshoring the crucial semiconductor industry back to the United States. TSMC, which employs 65,000 workers worldwide, says it has onboarded nearly 
2,000 staff for its Arizona plan so far, including 600 engineers. But TSMC's harsh working culture, rigid standards, and months-long overseas training requirements are turning off current and prospective American employees. The chip giant says its Arizona hiring is on schedule, but it has introduced new policies of late that suggest it's trying to combat a reputation as an unsparing employer among the engineers and technicians it urgently needs. TSMC sets a high bar for its employees. 60% of its Taiwanese employees and over 80% of its managers hold a master's degree or higher, according to a 2020 company report. TSMC allow a reasonable expression of opinion on work-related matters, but only from engineer or deputy manager to the department manager. It's impossible for managers to express their opinions to upper-level management. This simply cannot be done. Supervise chastise workers who apply for overtime. Most workers accrue overtime to finish their heavy workloads, but many are too afraid to ask to be paid for it. Fortune contacted several new U.S.-based recruits and Taiwan-based engineers, but they all declined to talk, citing TSMC's strict privacy policies and concerns about retaliation. TSMC's worldwide turnover rate among staff that joined in the previous year surged at 17.6% in 2021 from 11.6% in 2017 according to the company's 2021 sustainability report. Still, TSMC is a coveted employer in Taiwan, in large part because it offers relatively high wages. New engineering grads with a master's degree earn on average $65,700 a year, while general full-time staff earns $32,800, compared to Taiwan's average annual income of $21,700. But TSMC's supremacy in pumping out high-tech chips isn't making up for the lopsided bargain. It's offering highly educated candidates in the United States, a rigid workplace with arduous training requirements in exchange for pay that's lower than rivals. TSMC doesn't need all PhDs. Taiwan's higher education system, where 31% of university students choose STEM majors, compared to 17.5% in the United States. For jobs in its fabs, the company prefers candidates with PhD and master degrees more so than peers like Intel. Some industry observers argue that TSMC's education expectations are unnecessarily high, especially in the United States. The bulk of fab employees don't need more than a bachelor's degree. PhDs are necessary in the industry, but it doesn't need all of them to have PhDs. Another big challenge is compensation. TSMC pays up to $160,000 annually for PhDs with some good experience. That same PhD can earn some $30,000 more at Intel, according to Payscale, a website that tracks company salaries. According to the recruiting challenge, is TSMC's demand that new U.S.-based engineering and technician hires ship off to Taiwan for up to 18 months of overseas and cultural exposure. Since April of 2021, TSMC has sent 600 newly hired U.S. engineers to Taiwan. The overseas engineering component requires 
U.S. staff to spend anywhere from 12 to 18 months in Taiwan. Many candidates are unwilling to go to Taiwan because of the strain it would impose on their families. Some worried about catching COVID-19 and the territory's geopolitical tensions with China, while others simply didn't have passports. TSMC is making changes to better compete in the cutthroat battle for U.S. chip talent. The company's increased staff salaries worldwide by 20% in 2021 in hopes of improving hiring and retention. Recruiters say TSMC rivals have hiked their salaries in return, boosting pay across the industry. The company is also upgrading and expanding its Arizona training facility so fewer recruits are required to train overseas, but there will still be some roles which necessitates training on-site in Taiwan. TSMC founder Morris Chang has repeatedly said that the company's success in Taiwan would be difficult to replicate in another country. The U.S. lack of manufacturing talents, as he puts it, put it and its expensive production costs make TSMC U.S. gambit particularly challenging. In Chow's view, TSMC's decision to expand U.S. production is not economically rational, but the planned geopolitical value to the United States and to Taiwan in the event of any conflict with China far exceeds the value to the company and may make it too important to fail. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, I'm curious. We've we've talked in the past about your power and you've been uh, regaling me offline about uh, all of these different issues you're chasing after with with powering the house, battery backups and stuff like that. And I'm still hoping to get a generator company to uh, support my review wishes. Yeah, uh, yeah. But at the moment, I'm going after these LIFEPO4, lithium okay. iron phosphate battery boxes that have very much less self-degradation over time. They keep the charge longer. The whole the battery itself lives longer. Latest mm-hmm. is the Runhood 600 Portable Power Station Pro. Uh, okay. The Rally, now Rally with an extra E at the end. The Rally 600 Portable Power Station Pro Plus Solar has mm-hmm. a really interesting system architecture. The main power station has twin chambers on the back that each take a long battery. They sent me four batteries. You can draw power to charge it from a 24-volt DC power supply brick like a laptop would use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that brick does get hot. I measured 135 degrees. Ooh, toasty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how I could... It, it'll be great during the winter it. time. <laughs> yeah. uh, you can also plug into a car's 12-volt accessory plug. They include the cable or plug in a solar panel. Okay. My kit includes a heavy package about the size of a pizza box that unfolds into a long solar array with struts in the back mm-hmm. that you un-Velcro to set it up at a jaunty angle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, sun, yeah. You know? uh, with batteries one and two charging on AC, I use the cables they sent to connect batteries three and four to the solar charging. It's slower, and in cloudy old Cleveland, it's not always steadier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> workable. Uh, once batteries are charged, each one can go to work individually. They sent two plug-on modules that go on the back of the 
of one battery. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. One of the modules is an 80-watt AC outlet. The mm-hmm. other one has several USB charging connections. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back at the portable power station, once you've got those batteries charged, it can deliver up to 600 watts through the combination of two AC outlets, two DC outlets, a 12-volt auto accessory socket, lighter plug. It's four yeah. USB charging ports, and it's integrated LED flashlight that also does patterns like SOS. Okay. Uh, all right. Capacity overall rated at 640 watt hours with one pair of batteries. Swap out, you go again, 1296. It's a really flexible system, a really different kind of architecture, a lot of pieces. You want to figure out a way to keep everything organized because they don't quite do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do like the idea of like that mix and match because, yeah. you know, there are going to be times where you want a little bit of power and other times where you're going to want, you know, the, the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. Yeah. The, the old doggone if uh, what only moment, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Rally uh, 600 portable power station front hood, uh, the Pro, is about $1,300 at Amazon. Okay. So that, um, that's right in the right price range. Okay. Yeah. Now, talk about something that's dear to your heart. Kensington sent their QuietType Pro silent wireless mechanical keyboard. Oh, love keyboards. <laughs> yeah, I know. I obsess I, over them. The last one I had, I won't name the brand, but I'd been using it for a long time, and it just got furloughed in favor of this new Kensington MK7500F Quiet Type mm-hmm. Pro Silent Wireless Mechanical Keyboard. It's heavy. It's solid. Wireless is an option. Actually, several options because uh, there's a dongle at three USB channels. But I went wait, unwireless wait, wait, oh. o- over USB. So uh, I'm wireless. It's wired and wireless. Yeah, both. Okay. Yeah, whichever you want. I mean, there's a battery inside that you have so, to charge. So you're charging sometimes. it up. Okay. So yeah. so like uh, like um. But USB uh, can also signal connect. So you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is what I chose. Why you know why bother with the charging? <laughs> <laughs> All right. But what's cool? What's cool? Lots of dedicated function keys for calls, for meetings, FN key combos, for shuttle mm-hmm, control, mm-hmm, for volume mm-hmm. control, for backlight brightness, and four assignable keys initially set up to launch the calculator, to search, to show the desktop, which I reprogrammed to launch an edge window, and mm-hmm. to do a screen snip. Okay. And it has an app, a connect app, and uh, uh, yeah, baby, keyboard back uh, macros. Keyboard macros are back. I love macros. Yeah, it's so fun. Do we? You just press one button and it types a paragraph, two paragraphs. Indeed. Opens window, closes the other windows. Yeah, go on. And I, I set up the five on the number keypad. You know, the 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 button that never does anything else. Uh, It now launches Window Explorer for me, so I can get to the files. Okay. Yeah. All right. Nice. Nice. Uh, by the way, its keys are marked for both Windows and Mac users. Some people use both, and it supports select good, good. and connect use. So okay. With with you know with those three, I have no idea how many things you're going to keyboard all at once with those three uh, Bluetooth uh, channels, but. they're set they're all ready for whatever it is you're going to do. Uh, a handset, a tablet, a notebook. Anyway. I need to mention the keys because mechanically they are the very best feel I've experienced in a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And the speedy supporting electronics that they, well, they just never fail to keep up with you. 
A wrist rest is in there. A keyboard cover comes with it. Uh, Kensington Quiet Type Pro. It's about two hundred bucks at Amazon. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a premium keyboard. I get it. So yeah, definitely. All right. This is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect. Thursday, August the 3rd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, August the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, you call 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, August the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, August the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.